Sing Glory! Today we're sitting down with freelance writer and deputy editor of Broccoli Magazine, Ellen Freeman, as well as Sherida Tolton, graphic designer, product photographer, and art educator for persons with disabilities. I initially approached Ellen on the basis of discussing her written work and her current position of Broccoli Magazine, but it soon turned into a trio combo that serendipitously has come out the other end in what I can only describe as an ode to friendship and the ways in which theirs supports them on a personal and professional level. What started out as a mutual disinterest in their peers' gusto for biology, not to mention Sherida's innate styling of dungarees, has led to the eventual co-founding of Muff, a biennial magazine of feminism and esoterics. I hope you lend us an ear as once again the friendship honed between ladies shows to be one of connection, collaboration, and sisterhood. This is You Can Always Add Your Two Cents to Muff with Ellen Freeman and Sherida Tolden. A quick heads up. We're dealing with an overseas conversation here, so the audio may reflect this. Coming to you from Mexico City, Oakland, California, and Amsterdam, the Netherlands. I'm pretty sure both of you guys are slashies in regards to the fact that you just do a lot. Um, but if you could give our listeners some official labels, what it is exactly that you do. Um, so, this is Sharda. Hello. Um, and I live in Oakland, California, um, where I'm a graphic designer and product photographer for a beauty company called Illumino. I also, my um, formal education is in teaching art and design. Um, so, I'm also a, a teaching artist at NIAD, um, which is an art center for people with disabilities um, in Richmond, California. Um, uh, yep, yeah, so I teach there as well. I'm Ellen. I live in Mexico City, but I'm from Portland. Um, I am a freelance writer and editor. So I write cultural stories um, for various online and print publications. And I make muff with Sharda, and I also help edit a magazine called Broccoli. Well, I thought we could kind of switch it up, and instead of having you describe yourself, if you could describe each other as friends and co-founders. Mm. Ooh, what's that? Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see. Ellen is... I th- I think what I'm attracted to about Ellen, I think why I love Ellen is um, she has an extremely broad range of curiosities and she feeds all that curiosity by um, always learning, always reading, taking in like interesting archival media. And so whatever we've kind of decided on together as an area of interest she can always fuel that with with this amazing amount of like cultural information. She's like a walking encyclopedia. Yeah, because I feel like I know nothing. A true Zen mind. <laughs> yeah, I've I've eliminated it all. <laughs> and Sharda, um, so Sharda 
creates the aesthetic of muff and this kind of amazing thing has happened where when we first started making this I think I had in my mind what a zine looked like and then Sharda came up with something that was a whole new species and I felt like I had never seen anything like it before and now I'm starting this is you know like a year and a half I guess a year and a half later mm-hmm. now I'm starting to see this kind of aesthetic vernacular creeping up in little places like little mold spores and I'm pretty sure that Sharda is um, tapped into some kind of some kind of um, prophetic aesthetic zeitgeist. <laughs> cool. Wow. And that we're going to see you this explosion, but that you'll know where it came from. Wow. Yeah. Nice spore metaphor, but thank you for that. <laughs> wow. And what, what does the intuition mean to both of you? Hmm. Um, I think I, we might have really different answers. About oh, that. can't wait to hear yours. <laughs> um... <laughs> So I guess I guess for me it's just trusting that I have an understanding or that I'm taking in information that's beyond what's immediately available to me rationally. Um, like the the sum of my memories and connections, sensory experiences are always informing my sense of how the world works. And I'm an anxiety person, so (laughs) I think for me, intuition is more of of a hindsight kind of thing, and um, it's later when I realize that maybe something hasn't gone according to plan, but that I kind of knew that was going to happen all along, that I'll realize Mm. that my, my intuition had been there. So I think for me, it's something that um, that I'm kind of chasing after. Um, well, I used to I used to believe that everything that I thought was a fact. <laughs> at some point, that became insufferable. So I started I started opening to the possibility that the that what I believed to be intuition could actually be hunger. Or, <laughs> jealousy or mm-hmm. resource scarcity. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that when you have that kind of process of like of distrusting the internal monologue, then you kind of have mm-hmm. to eventually rebuild um, the trust with, with that inner voice and kind of try to parse the hunger messaging from the um, heart messaging. So I think that's <laughs> where I am right now with intuition. And are there any things you're currently trying to implement in your daily life that would bridge this gap between you and your intuition? I think it's just like pattern finding. Mm. Like when I, I mean, you know, I think that there, you can ultimately boil down the voices to like fear and maybe love. Um, I'm just stealing that idea from a friend who told me that, but, um, and so I think that the ones that, it, you know, I think when you start listening, I'm starting to be able to figure out which ones are fear-based messages. Mm-hmm. Um, and so noticing those patterns that, that feel, I don't know, you know, like every time I have a deadline, I have like a week of no sleep 
and no friends where it's like, <laughs> you're not, you'll never get this done. And I'm, and I used to think that that was my like practical intuition, you know, helping me to stay on top of my tasks. But um, I'm starting to, after a few years of that pattern, starting to see it as a fear message. Mm-hmm. It's totally fine if you don't want to share, but do you perhaps maybe know where this might stem from? Oh, oh that's a good question. Um... Well, you know, doesn't it all come from our moms? <laughs> blame the parents. I don't want to blame my mom in particular, but just mom. Someone's mom. Someone's mom. <laughs> Aww. And Sherida, I noticed that you were pretty, pretty like straightforward with your answer and what your intuition mm-hmm. means to you. And mm-hmm. I'd love to kind of know the ground basis as to how perhaps your intuition came to be and your relationship with it. Was it, did it stem from your own childhood, your parents, or were there certain factors that contributed to it as you went into your career and kind of matured? I think of Sherda as a very naturally intuitive person, empathetic, <laughs> like intuitive internally, but also externally. Mm, externally intuitive that's cool yeah intuitive about other people and environments and situations mm-hmm. I'm actually a psychic medium <laughs> no I don't I don't identify as that it's great when people do but I I don't um no I yeah I um I have I guess I have always I've always felt connected with my intuition, even from youth. Um, I was raised in a household that was, like, kind of weirdly philosophy-based. Um, lots of lots of conversations about the universe at the dinner table, um, <laughs> often to the neglect of, like, mundane details about just, like, you know, pres- preserving the fine the family finances and that kind <laughs> of thing. Um, we were we always had our eye on the bigger picture, um, and so I think while I I've got a big family, and while a lot of my siblings have like rejected that, instead I've just internalized all of it. So I I continue to be a person who has a hard time like managing my taxes, but but I I'm always. I'm always aware of my place, like in the in the cosmos, in in the the greater web of beings. Yeah, and it feels like your family definitely gave you that space to just develop. Right. Once again, moms. Moms, yeah. there you go. The power lady. Love you, mom. It seems that mm-hmm. both of you have known each other for from quite early on when did you guys actually meet we met uh, in college mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. freshman year yeah we we went to a small school outside of philadelphia and it was kind of at the time i mean i think it's grown tremendously since then but at the time it felt a little bit like an aesthetic desert like <laughs> Like nobody, nobody wanted to talk about anything other than biology there, and so we formed this very, 
very unfortunately narrow group of friends <laughs> um, and kind of fiercely clung to them because we we perceived e- each other as creative people I guess because I think just Sarah like... came onto my radar for two reasons and mm. one was that we both tried out for the same improv group <laughs> and I did not I was not accepted and was and she was also the only um person in our age bracket back then who wore overalls oh wow which wow. yeah. now Again, prophetic imagination now, yeah, yeah. Now it's like every basic girl's got her dungarees but <laughs> and you guys both decided to go to um japan around yeah like right after college was it kind of like a gap year yeah i think it was Element burst. Yeah, it was my idea. <laughs> you drag her along with you? I no, I think it was more of like that what do you do after college kind of mm-hmm. thing. And for both of you, was Japan sort of a that figuring out process? Yeah, I think that I mean I had been living in Philadelphia at the time. Um and, and working at a school and was just was was feeling myself being kind of hemmed in that that I, I was watching my my sense of what I could do next with my career and do next socially like be, become more pigeonholed and, and narrower um, and so I was really attracted to the idea of a full context switch I think it was I mean I think it was partly kind of like an escapist (laughs) for three years for me (laughs) like a putting off of making decisions about being an adult while like having this veneer of professionality Um, (laughs) but I started well I had been freelance writing a little bit in college um, so I worked at a school where I had to be at my desk from like eight in the morning until four in the afternoon, regardless of whether I had classes or like even really whether school was in session. <laughs> and so I had to find something to do during that time when I wasn't like lesson planning or making like a, um, carpenter song bingo boards. <laughs> but I, so I started writing stories for some, like, women's fashion websites uh, that kind of interpreted things that I found interesting about Japanese culture for an American audience. So that's really when I started, like, feeling like I could be taken seriously as a writer, (laughs) maybe. Um, And then I knew when, when we eventually decided to leave, I knew that that was what I wanted to focus on when we came back. Was it the same for you, Sherida? That tying in that experience in Japan, did that contribute to your end goal of, like, what's going to happen next? It absolutely did. I I would say that I had been kind of visually dormant for a, for, I don't know, seven years or something. I'd been really interested in visual art in high school and then I became like a a true try-hard academic (laughs) student for a while um, and kind of let that go but when I was in Japan 
because of I, I was I was just so attracted to illustration there, um, to kind of the intention that's put into like any space or any um, any any sensory experience, whether it's like going to a cafe, the presentation of the you know the like the carefully thrown mug and like two almonds on a plate next to your <laughs> your cup of coffee um I think it, it for me it it would have been impossible not to be inspired by that um so it was while I was in Japan that I that I started drawing again um that I started being more interested in design and that's when I decided to go back to school and get my master's in teaching art and design. I came to visit Sharda's apartment in her in in Japan and she had a lot of extra space and in this like office room she had constructed this giant diorama in clay and like things from the Japanese dollar store which is amazing <laughs> crafters resource of Adam and Eve in Eden with like little clay fig leaves and it had, like, a little light display that you could turn on it was really amazing <laughs> entirely I would say yeah that was that was definitely rooted in my experience in Japan that I could not have existed in an American closet <laughs> I'd love to know how each of you guys have both played into each other's careers before Muff and leading up to Muff. Mm. I mean, it's it was pretty serendipitous, actually, because that same visit um, for New Year's... Oh, yeah. I met... So Sharda's boyfriend at the time, his brother <laughs> his brother's girlfriend were also visiting and she worked for the women's fashion website that I ultimately ended up writing about Japan for and she mentioned like people love Japan you should write about Japan and I had never really thought of that before so if it weren't for Sharda I wouldn't mm. have done that I'm incredibly well connected <laughs> um I say Ellen hasn't really helped me at all yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are a lot of opportunities I've been withholding. <laughs> yeah, Ellen's a real like sort of experience hoarder, I would say, and she's she's been she's been leaving all of those opportunities for herself. No, um, no, I think it's more of like a sort of spiritual inspiration. Ellen's always like my ideal reader for something I would say like if Ellen if Ellen finds this like extremely niche humor nugget of mine funny it's like enough for me um, <laughs> so so yeah um, I would say in my more in my more creative stuff Ellen as um, as a platonic ideal has been very important. The and ideal of Ellen is more important than, like, the real Ellen. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, it's funny that you say that, because I was about to say, I think I'm a, I'm an ideas man, whereas Sharda's sure. <laughs> more of a uh, get-her-done kind of gal. Get-her-done mm. gal. Um, and nice. so, so, like, when Muff was just the apple in our eye, 
we were like really excited about it. But like for me, just getting excited about something is usually enough. <laughs> and then Fred actually wanted to do it. So she's like, let's take the reins on this one. Yeah. Yeah, and I think Shard is kind of the the whip cracker, um, in terms of making thing making sure that things actually come to fruition. Mm, that's nice. You both complement each other really well. Oh, thanks. I just really like Ellen. So it's easy. <laughs> Uh, but, Sherida, I read that you described Muff as a biannual magazine of feminism and esoterics. And how have you both approached its physical publication in relation to the esoterical content you're publishing? Because, say, reaching out to the demographic you're catering towards, and more often than not, you're hearing people say, print is dead. It's How, how, have you, how do you find a balance in this? Well, I think... I mean... You know, we're we're operating as a small press, and I think uh, I think we've I think that what we're doing, we're not really interested in reaching a mass audience. And actually, within our niche audience readership, print is not dead. I think print is like is experiencing this incredible renaissance, really. Um, I think I think um, artist books are one of the more exciting medium media out there right now, um, and so that I mean that that's certainly something that's like a mantra that's that's um, being shared a lot right now that that print is dead, but at the same time we're seeing um, more art book fairs and more. Um, more prominent artists like reaching toward print media that um, I think we have um, in recent memory. Um, so it's cool to be a part of that and cool to be a part of this like small press revolution. And how esoteric content uh, relates to that, um, I think that it's exciting for us to be tapping into this, again, like, spiritual renaissance zeitgeist that's that's happening right now that, um, you know, I think especially with what we see being shared on social media, um, that people are less interested in what has been kind of factually or like scientifically agreed upon right now and in, and instead or or at least things that have been exclusively thought of in that way and more more just thinking about um finding finding a path for yourself and and making meaning out of things based on your own very specific experiences um and so we are we're kind of trusting that, like trusting that that trend that we're seeing and the way that people are expressing themselves. Um, and we're allowing, we're, we're providing a space for those voices. We're allowing people to think about, to, to kind of explore the phenomena of our world from a less rational scientific perspective in us. Where does love stem from in regards to 
your own um, intuition, both professionally and personally? Well, I think um, for a while now I've been really attracted to um, the sort of speculative fiction brand of feminism and also kind of separately I've, I've always been uh, attracted to self-help rhetoric and propaganda. <laughs> um, and so it's, it's just felt, it's felt like this extended kind of love poem to, uh, to that, to kind of using those, using that language and those, that visual aesthetic for, exploring contemporary uh, issues, media, phenomena. I think it just came out of both of us noticing this renaissance of things that when we were kids or even teens would have been super freaky, being Mm -hmm. kind of accepted or, like, commodified by people of our age, like a, a wittiness or astrology or energy healing or crystals or, you know, anything in that, anything that would have been found at the Renaissance bookshop in Portland. I don't know. If you know. <laughs> new, new Renaissance bookshop. <laughs> um, talking a lot about that, but also talking about how there were a lot of of parts of, of the culture that that came out of that maybe didn't need to make it into this renaissance <laughs> um, and, and wanting to kind of ground that interest in the contemporary world. And then also talking about women's magazines, self-help propaganda, like Sarda said, and the kind of patronizing tone mm-hmm. that, we use even to talk to ourselves uh, in that space mm-hmm. and and reframe having a space that could reframe that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think in the the version in the kind of original New Age, um, the way that we thought about that we thought about uh, our spirituality was very connected to this kind of um, self-seeking purity uh, and even related to like health and beauty um, in this way that's like kind of funnily, funny, it funnily directed at women. Um, and so we're, we're, we're trying to parse those influences and be like, wait, in, in what ways does, does the spiritual seekers path like actually have to do actually have to do with how wide our pores are you know does it make any sense that this is the way that it's been packaged for us in the past exactly within the spectrum anything that you guys are leaning towards right now something that would definitely raise some eyebrows well we're working on our animal issue so some of the the themes we've been talking about are cages, domestication, humanimality, lizard people, pet psychics, really anything to, 
to kind of disrupt the anthropocentric perspective. Has there ever been any backlash within the community of Muff towards the subjects that you're talking about? I something that immediately comes to mind is recently I had posted I had posted like a a video of a police dog calendar, which was so bizarre. It was like painting these like cops as heroes and um, and specifically framed that way and framed as more um, more caring, more human because they were posing next to their great big dogs. Um, and so I had so I had posted this kind of thing like, um, asking about asking how we perceive the dogs in the police dog in the police dog role, and um, which which is something that I haven't really I haven't encountered that kind of conversation before. So it's totally new territory, um, and not not entirely as a backlash as an angry way, but we got a lot of responses from people um, coming coming from their own really, really specific cultural context, saying things like, um, the, like the dogs are still cops or the, um, or the, the dogs are, the dogs are victims. They're, they're victims of, um, like Stockholm syndrome, uh, and to blame the dogs, uh, is victim blaming. And, um, so, but I, but I think that we we managed it well, um, despite that, despite all of the different like kind of feelings and perspectives coming up, um, and that what instead kind of, I instead came out of it uh, was that um, that looking at it from the dog's perspective was a new way of of considering our relationship to police and our communities. I think it ended up being a dialogue, too, Mm -hmm. because we asked people if we could screenshot and share their responses in our Instagram story, Mm -hmm. and I think everyone was down. Mm -hmm. And then people were responding to each other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it definitely sounds like, say, more than, as you said, a backlash. It's definitely a community that's opened up a dialogue and allows for contribution and the further Mm -hmm. education on these subjects which I love that it's like you're putting these subjects out there and talking about the subject matter but there's always room for its development and to further add on to the conversation I think that's been really important to us for it to to feel like a a porous community that you can always you can always add your two cents to Muff um and in terms of publishing is Muff self-published mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what does the process look like when it comes to sourcing content and printing and the eventual distribution it starts out um well it's i mean it's kind of an evolving process because we're on our third issue now but it starts out usually with us just talking about a theme amongst ourselves and then kind of musing on that for a while and opening that up to writers we know, artists we know, and then people we don't know via Instagram, um, and generating themes that 
might be thought-provoking and then allowing people to submit their ideas but also reaching out to people whose work we like and giving them maybe a little prompt and seeing if they might be interested and gathering all the content that way. I'm also interested in hearing how you tackle sustainability and ethicality and in regards to the merchandise along with the publication how does that how do you guys handle that I uh well we've always been really really adamant that we wouldn't use any plastic in our packaging um and I think it was nice that from early on we decided that I mean our first issue was about stuff it was themed stuff and it was kind of about waste and excess and our our relationship to to materialism so it would have seemed I think it would have been a very clear like transgression of our values if we had then like packaged up um packaged up the print in like bubble wrap and sent it out (laughs) um to our readers um so it was it was good to have that specific reason um for a kind of for to 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 stay close to sustainability early on um and as we've scaled up marginally we've we've kept that as a core value but then beyond beyond just sustainability we've also tried to adhere to some kind of um I would say visual ethics or um, even like textual textual ethics as well. Uh, Our last issue was about the body and um, we had a lot of conversations among just each other about what kind of imagery was appropriate to share. Uh, Because even, even when people are generating their own content about their bodies like I, I think it's not it's not in every case self-aware and in in some cases it you, it can feel like a self-exploitation and we were really careful to look for a visual line that we felt comfortable with that was um that was portraying bodies from a place of possibility rather than just rehearsing old um, (laughs) kind of body negative tropes. Has there ever been a time where you felt that maybe there were certain subjects that uh, you kind of put out there in a way that it was set in stone or there wasn't, say, further room for discussion, and you didn't take the perspective of, say, someone who's on the other side of the spectrum into consideration, and that it was definitely a learning process. Well, I think, you know, because part of what this is supposed to be is is a, a group of voices rather than just us, our, our process of finding artists and writers has has had to be honed over time and it's there there are very real barriers in in finding um diverse voices and we so over time we've had to do a lot of reflection on like wait how can we get how can we get a true um how can we get true diversity into 
this publication. And I don't think we've arrived at a, a perfect version of it yet. And I think it's going to continue to take a lot. Um, but that's in one, that's one way that it feels like a, it, it, it feels like we're still in process. In terms of self-publishing, what advice would you give to those looking to go down this route? I think our biggest challenge right now, just in terms of being able to keep the project going, is finding a way to fund it. So we've basically just been self-funding. Um, and I don't know if that's advice. I don't think there's advice I can give. But we've actually been, it's been really helpful for us to talk to other mm -hmm. self-publishers at ZineFest and art book fairs about how they do it. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess I don't have advice to give, but I would say that that's something to consider. Mm -hmm. Yeah, reach out to uh, those within your community. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think that, I think that tapping into community is is really important with self-publishing um usually I'm the kind of person who has like over 10 projects cooking and very few of them actually ever get finished um but with Muff since we've had first off like Ellen and I have a collaborative relationship so we have to kind of hold each other accountable but then also we have a network of contributors and readers and and uh, other people who are, are just kind of peers within the self-publishing community um and so they kind of hold us accountable as well we have we have this this kind of compact that we set um, that will will produce an issue within this amount of time, um, and it's going to have a certain um, intention behind its content, uh, and so that's that's very motivating. It, it keeps us it keeps the project going. And in closing, um, I'd love to know what Muff has brought to both of your lives, what elements is contributed, and just as you said, Sherida, that you kind of see it as this extension, it's this love note, how you're kind of looking at Muff right now and being like, wow, I never expected this to derive from this project and that it would affect me in this way. I think for me it is that community that Sherida is talking about because I've always thought of writing and creating as a pretty isolating, isolated exercise. Um, even just like sharing my work with others is not ideal for me. Um, and so finding people who are having the same conversations, who are interested in the same things, and who are also creating um, has been really eye-opening for me, really mm -hmm. welcoming. Mm -hmm. I, I think for me it's been important that, important to create a space for exploring ideas. Um, since we do different themes each issue and we always have 
we have this kind of ever broadening base of of contributors. Um, it's not the the form is evolving, and it feels very fun to have to have a space for whatever I'm whatever I'm kind of processing at the time to to appear. You know, either in the content that we put on Instagram or um, or if it's like a full article uh, in Muff or something that just appears in footnotes that that there's this specific or this this um, object kind of archive of of what we're processing at the time. This is Ellen and this is Sharda. This was You Can Always Add Your Two Cents to Muff with Ellen Freeman and Sherida Tolton. Refer to the show notes to further get to know our guests. Share your thoughts and show us some love by subscribing or get in touch to be featured on the podcast. Released every other Monday. Thanks for lending us an ear. Passing on the mic.